0: Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks, where every other week, our resident amateur meteorological enthusiast, Tom, attempts to predict the extended weather forecast for Muncie, Indiana, and surrounding Delaware County.
1: Woo! We're in for a wet one next week. On Monday, you can expect some rain and snow showers there early in the morning with a high only reaching about 48. The rain's going to continue on through Wednesday. We're not going to see a high again for the rest of the week above 45. So my recommendation is if you plan on heading out north to see the Caspian Sea, make sure you bring an umbrella and a nice jacket. Back to you, Mark. Mm
0: once every two weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school join us mark and tom as we examine old hits forgotten favorites and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward angst-filled teenage years one album at a time Thomas, Hello, Marcus. How are you today, sir? I'm okay. How about yourself? Things are good. Excellent. Have you been doing anything fun lately?
1: Uh, We just went to Peoria, Illinois, so no. (laughs) What's in Peoria, Illinois? My daughter's birth mother and her family. It was great to see them, but... Oh, okay. Peoria, Illinois is not a terribly exciting place to go. I imagine not. Have you done anything exciting or fun lately, Mark?
0: Yes. I had a very enjoyable trip down to Texas. My buddy Pedro picked me up from the airport and we drove up to Dallas and we saw Placebo at the House of Blues in Dallas. I hadn't seen Placebo before and they were amazing. They were super tight and they sounded really good and even though they played mostly new stuff, they did throw in a couple old songs and they even threw in their version of Running Up the Hill which predates Stranger Things by, you know, a decade. And that was my introduction actually to that song.
1: That's what I was going to say. My first experience with that song and still my favorite is placebo
0: yeah they do an incredible version of it and that was just a wonderful wonderful show
1: don't get me wrong kate bush does an amazing job but i'm just more connected with placebo certainly but if i had to choose
0: a favorite kate bush song i'd go cloud bursting that's fair that's a good song So, yeah, placebo was amazing. And then I went back to Houston for a couple days, hung out with my brother there. And then Pedro, my brother James and I went and saw the cure.
1: Oh, that's amazing.
0: It was his first time seeing them. It was my third time. And it was one where since I had seen them before and I had seen pictures of Robert recently and he was looking rough, I was like, eh, whatever. It'll be fun just to like go and let James have the experience. But I tell you, like as bad as it is to look at Robert, they sounded amazing. Amazing. really they were phenomenal
1: oh i'm so glad to hear that man and
0: they played like four or five brand new songs that were all incredible really this is like wish slash disintegration level cure when's it getting released there's not a release date set yet gotcha they'll probably figure it out some point after the tour i know prior to the pandemic setting in robert had been talking about how he had enough material for three new albums and the pandemic hit and everybody's plans went out the window although i don't know why he couldn't just hold up in the studio and recorded three albums right anyway i don't know when it's coming out but there's video from pretty much every show you can find online if you just youtube the current cure tour and new songs Yeah, i'm gonna go check it out we were in the nosebleeds on the far side of the arena robert's little tiny down there and even when they had him on the big screen behind them he wasn't ever big enough on the screen to be super clear so i never had to acknowledge how rough he's looking these days so i could just sit back and listen and just be enthralled so that was nice
1: that is such good news I am excited to visit our neighbors to the north today, though.
0: Indeed.
1: Tonight, we are covering the 1997 Our Lady Peace album, Clumsy.
0: Yes. It was their second album. It was released January 23rd, 1997. Our sophomore year of high school. I think somehow we keep getting stuck on albums from Columbia Records, even if we don't care for the way that Columbia was managing their bands.
1: They had some great bands, though, in the 90s. Apparently. And made some bangers.
0: Makes me question if there were just no other
1: labels.
0: (laughs) Our Lady Peace is a four-piece from Toronto, Canada. I'm going to mispronounce Canada all night just so you know, John, don't worry. It's on purpose.
1: I like the idea of mispronouncing as much as we can just for John.
0: Well, I do it regardless, but I'm just letting John know so he doesn't have to text me later.
1: The band lead for Our Lady Peace is Rain Maida, who does vocals, acoustic guitar and piano. And Mm -hmm. did you know he is cousins with Avril Lavigne?
0: I did not, but I guess I just figured that all Canadians are related somehow.
1: I could just leave this here and say it was true. And I doubt many people would question it, but it's not. Oh. He does have a strong Avril Lavigne connection. Do they wear the
0: same brand of scarf?
1: No. Rain's wife, Chantal, invited Avril to their Malibu in-house recording studio where she recorded the songs for her album, Under My Skin.
0: Okay. I did not
1: know that. Yep. She wrote most of the album with Chantal.
0: Good for her.
1: And Christine went to the bathroom with Chantal once and spoke briefly at a concert okay apparently she won't use that as a point of contact you know hey i was in the bathroom next to you in 1999 in tulsa oklahoma where you go on my husband's podcast
0: yeah that's too bad that could be a solid in right i just have to question christine's commitment to sparkle motion
1: (laughs) he's got a really unique voice i like rain's voice a lot it's this counter nasal falsetto voice that he has
0: yep and i like it It's somehow a higher, more nasally Billy Corgan. It is. Which I don't know how that's possible. It's a miracle in and of itself. It really is.
1: But to make it even more miraculous, it sounds so cool.
0: It does. However, he's kind of gone away from that in recent years, which is sad. It is. It's very sad. So on this last Pumpkins tour, Jane's Addiction had been the opening band for it. But they had to drop out of a show or two and Our Lady Peace filled in. And since they were filling in for Jane's Addiction, they covered Coming Down the Mountain. Okay. I saw a video posted of this and I was like, okay, this could be really good. And then I was disappointed because he's no longer singing in that high voice. Because if he was singing in that high voice, he would definitely, you know, channel Perry Farrell and be at that level. But he's singing it, trying to sing in a good, like, regular tenor baritone And I'm just like, this is an incredible missed opportunity. Is it an age thing, I wonder? Because he is, what, 50-ish years old? It very well could be, but I know it's something. 53. But I know it's something that on just one or two albums after this, he started getting away from, I don't know the reasonings, because it all happened after this album. So I didn't care enough to look into it. It's not a problem. Exactly. Who else is in the band, Mark? On drums and percussion, we have Jeremy Taggart, who was only 17 when he joined the band. And if you watch music videos from their first album, he's the baby in the back of the band on the drums with glasses. <laughs> he looks so young because he was. And how would you pronounce Duncan's last name?
1: Coats. Couts. Let's go with Couts. Let's just make that our official designation.
0: Okay. And on bass guitar, whose last name we're going to butcher is Duncan Couts. He joined the band between the first and the second record while the band was touring a lot. The original bassist, Chris, who also has last name, I will butcher every time I say, Eckert. And then we have Mike Turner on electric guitar. And he was the one who had the idea to start the band in the first place.
1: It wasn't just an idea. He ran an ad for it, right? He did. In
0: 1991, Mike Turner placed an ad looking to start a band in Toronto's weekly free press, and Maida just happened to be the very first person to respond to the ad. At the time, he was a student at the University of Toronto and he was studying criminology. He was also going by the name of Michael, since that is the name his parents gave him.
1: (laughs) He changed his name to Rain around the same time the band changed its name. To Our Lady Peace from As
0: If. Oh, that would have been such a good name in the 90s, though.
1: It totally would have been a good name in the 90s. The problem with band names that you give yourself in the 90s is if you're still touring in the 20s, you still carry that name.
0: True, but a name like As If would be a guaranteed slot on the Clueless soundtrack. It would be. Where did the Our Lady Peace name come from?
1: It's from a poem. The poem has the same name. It's a poem by Mark Van Doren. Did you read the poem? I did. What'd you think?
0: Ambivalence.
1: That's kind of where I landed on it, because I was thinking, this has got to be good if it spawned the entire name of a band, but I think they liked the title more than the poem.
0: I don't know. Maybe there's something about it. I mean, it's been two weeks since I read the poem now, so I don't remember it because it didn't make that much of an impression on me.
1: No, it didn't me either. It's not just that it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't rhyme, and it feels more stream of conscious. Right. I won't say stream of conscious. Each stanza of the poem feels like a different story.
0: Reading it didn't give me any big epiphany as to why they chose that as the name. But like you said, maybe they just liked the name more than the poem. Maybe there was actually something about the poem that spoke to them. Looking at the lyrics of the album, many of them are equally unmoving to me. Huh. That's going to be something we'll discuss in a bit. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah. In those early days, while they were still known as As- if they had gone to a musical seminar and it was there that they met Arnold Lanny or Lanai? Lanny. We are wonderful with last names. Now, Arnold had had some minor success with a couple of Toronto bands that he played in in the 80s, and he also owned Arnyard Studios. So he had some clout that these boys who are starting this new band could look up to. And they kind of vibed and he kind of took them under their wing. He has a bunch of credits as a producer. And out of all those credits that he has, there were only like three bands that I recognized. King's X, Finger Eleven, Simple Plan. Were there any on the list that I'm missing that you caught that were like, oh, I know them?
1: No, I've heard of King's X. I don't really know any of their music. Not a big Finger Eleven or Simple Plan fan.
0: Same. Same. I don't necessarily think that any of them are super close sound-wise to Our Lady Peace. No. Or really to each other. So to Lanny's credit, good for him for not just being pigeonholed. But then again, maybe some of those others are just Canadian famous?
1: That's what I was going to say. Maybe they're just Canadian bands that our Canadian listeners would know.
0: Maybe they're big bands that just never made it big south of the border. It's just weird. Using that phrase as somebody who's from Texas and having it mean us. <laughs> it's fun he must have been doing something right in our lady Peace's eyes because after producing their debut they brought him back and not just for clumsy but they did the next two albums after clumsy with him as well yes what was the band's first album it like everyone's last name i'm not entirely certain how to pronounce (laughs) i will take on the job
1: of going through and listening to interviews for all of these words (laughs) before we go on so i can sound like i know what i'm talking about perfect it was Cody Cross, right? Or Navid? No, it was Navid. Navid.
0: Yes. Yeah, Navid. That's how I've been saying it. So I'm glad that we're at least on the same page with that.
1: Their first album, Naviid, was not a huge success in the United States, right?
0: It made it big in Canada. And it was successful enough that Our Lady Peace found themselves opening for Van Halen, for Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, Bush, and Alanis Morissette. So they were doing something right. And they even had a single for the song Starseed from that album. It hit number seven on the Billboard Modern Rock charts in the U.S. It's even featured on the Armageddon soundtrack. Which, for me, was surprising for two reasons. First, because despite the success of that song, I had never heard of this band until Superman's Dead. And two, I was surprised to learn that there was more on the Armageddon soundtrack than just that one Aerosmith song.
1: The one where he's creepily singing while his daughter is making love to her husband?
0: Well, to Batman, yes. <laughs> Best Batman ever. Fight me. Ooh, disagree. Hard disagree. And that's fine, because you obviously don't know anything about Batman um i don't know how you could ever
1: say that when we had robert pattinson
0: and this is when the podcast breaks up
1: <laughs> i'm just kidding i do have a i do have a hot take my favorite
0: batman is ben affleck i don't see that as a hot take he is the best batman ever he had the worst well thanks for Robert pattinson yes not the worst batman movies anymore <laughs> he still was the embodiment of modern day batman perfectly yep kind of like how andrew garfield is the best spider-man I have to agree with that. And the one thing that the last Tom Holland Spider-Man movie did was bring Andrew Garfield back to prove he was the best Spider-Man. Now, despite the seeming success of that debut, when they started writing their second album, Tensions, in the band reached a point of impasse, Mm -hmm. where it came down to a change in personnel, and either Mike Turner was out or Chris Eckert was out. And if you were paying attention like two minutes ago, then, you know, Chris got the boot, but the band kept it classy, and they cited it was all due to creative differences. Hmm. I'm also not surprised that he got kicked out instead of Turner because Turner started the band. However, that didn't stop the band a few albums later from letting Turner leave also over creative creative differences. differences because art is hard. I heard the air quotes, Mark. I was doing air quotes. It's impressive. Eckert was replaced by Duncan Couts, who had been a classmate of Rain's at Ridley College before transferring to the University of Western Ontario, where he lived in the same dorm as Mike Turner. And by that, I mean the same building, not the actual same dorm room. But aside from bass, Duncan also played keys and cello and had a good singing voice. So he's able to do backing vocals, provide some nice harmonies. But aside from bringing all of these things to the table and utilizing them on this album, he's the only member of the band not given any writing credits on Clumsy. Hmm.
1: So I think that naturally brings us into the next part of our podcast, which is the recording process.
0: Indubitably. How did they record this, Mark? Very slowly. (laughs) The band had tentatively begun writing the second album while they were on tour in 95. And in December of that year, they returned home to Toronto. They rented a space to begin laying down demos with the plan to begin recording proper in January. But they quickly realized that they had a problem in that they realized that all of the songs they had been working on weren't very good. And part of that was the result of the success of their first album. As Lanny tells it, you sell that many records, everybody blows sunshine up your butt. And sometimes you believe the hype. So we had to pull the plug on that scenario. Somebody obviously was never paying attention to Public Enemy who preaches, don't believe the hype.
1: We've added, as we said earlier, Duncan to the band. Mm -hmm. One of the things he brings besides his musical talent He has a lakeside cottage in rural Ontario where they could go and cut themselves off from the rest of the world, write music, and since they are Canadians, play hockey. Makes sense. It does make sense.
0: I mean, I guess it is winter, so what else are you going to do in Canada? So as Rain tells it, we left those songs behind and we started fresh, completely removed from MTV or much music or press or management. We just played music and wrote music. We were having fun again. And when you start enjoying something, you almost don't care if anyone's going to like it because you're getting off on it. So the pressure was totally off. Legend has it, during that time in the wilderness, they left a tape recorder on all day in the cabin to capture the magic or the mishaps. And they just left it running all day and they would review it later and they would jam and whatever. And after a few weeks, they were really ready to begin again. And so the recording sessions for the second Our Lady Peace album began on February 8th, 1996, a month behind schedule, but whatever.
1: But they were ready because they had 20 new songs
0: to play with. Yeah, they wanted to try to cut it down to about a dozen of the best. So they go into the studio and they're ready to go. And on the very first day in the studio, instead of doing anything for the album, they actually end up laying down a cover of the Beatles song Tomorrow Never Knows for the Kraft soundtrack. It was one that they had been known to play live and people that they had toured with all thought they did it well. And so as the soundtrack for The Craft was coming together, somebody suggested to whoever was doing doing the soundtrack that, hey, these guys do a good version of this song. You should check it out. And so that's what they did day one in the studio instead of working on the album.
1: So they spend the next three months recording the album, and by April, had a good chunk of the songs recorded. So they could take a little breather and review what they had, what was working, how to best proceed. And at this point in the process, the working title from the album was what, Mark?
0: It was Propeller, and the idea behind that as the title was a propeller is what moves you forward. And so this is a band who had been a new band and found relative quick success. And so the idea was the second album was going to help actually establish a real career for them and move that career forward. However, as the band continued to finish recording, then experimenting, and then recording more, and really then get into the nitty-gritty, extra-nuance texture bits, the title of the album evolved into Trapeze, which was also... Like the cover art? Like the cover art, because it was also the title of one of the first songs that they had written for the album. So that was going to be the new title track for the album. And the story of the song Trapeze... It's about the four or five seconds of decision-making following the epiphany of a married man in the Russian circus who is a trapeze artist. He's at the start of his routine with his partner, who also happens to be his wife. And the epiphany that he had mere moments before needing to leap off the platform, swing out, and catch her in midair is the fact that she's been having an affair with a human cannonball. Oof. Again, in the words of Rain, some of the first lyrics I wrote were for Trapeze. These initial ideas kind of set the tone because it really told a story. And that kind of set the tone for the record, which I think is based on decision making. Not split second decisions, but when you get caught off guard and you have to make a choice, it's about what people choose to do in those times. And so there's themes that we'll get into as we progress through the songs that kind of see that idea at play as maybe moments where someone's at a crossroads or just how people process information. Whether
1: you're going to let your wife plummet to her death or you're going to save her.
0: Right. There's more to it than that because obviously the song got cut from the album. Right. But there's the same basic idea of being, as you two would say, stuck in a moment. (laughs) By September, they had finished tracking and mixing and were ready to send the album off. And the album was now called Clumsy and not Trapeze. I think they had a song on that album called Clumsy, right? They did. However, it was such a last minute decision that, as you said, the cover art is still this photo collage by Kevin Westenberg. And it's made up of images of a trapeze artist, midswing, holding on for dear life just with his teeth. The art direction and design for the cover and booklet were done by Helios, which is a Toronto-based design studio who also did cover art for Lynn and for Feist's solo debut, as well as a bunch of other bands that I didn't recognize because they're probably Canadian famous.
1: Are you a Feist fan?
0: I never got into her, no. Aside from her guest starring on the Stephen Colbert Christmas special. Have you guys covered that yet?
1: Oh, we haven't covered it, no. Do you want to join us when we do? Perhaps.
0: I do enjoy it thoroughly. So, how'd the album do?
1: It hit number one when it debuted in Canada, a feature that had only been achieved once by the Tragically Hip. It did reach platinum in the U.S., but went diamond
0: in Canada. It was listed as number 76 by Bob Merceau, who was a Canadian arts journalist in his 2007 book, The Top 100 Canadian Albums. Which, to me, I found surprising because it was one lower on the list than The Weaker Thans Left and Leaving. Hmm. Which was mostly surprising to see that The Weaker Thans were actually getting love and respect that they deserve. So then who was number one? Unsurprisingly, Neil Young's Harvest was number one on that list. Actually, maybe that is surprising because maybe I would have thought it would have gone to Rush. I think I would have picked Rush. I don't know. That's a good question for our friends north of the border. Fight over Neil Young or Rush. I know you're Canadian, so you don't really fight over anything, but (laughs) humor me. We kind of touched on this a bit during the Secret Samadhi episode, and since Clumsy dropped a month before that one, it's worth revisiting that this came out in a really weird in-between period for music, especially within the world of rock and popular radio. It did. Grunge wasn't just dying, it was dead. It wasn't coming back. Boy bands were on the rise. We're in the middle of Spice Mania. All the grunge bands were going soft. Jimmy had been fired from Smashing Pumpkins. Everything was up in the air. There were no guarantees on anything, but teen angst was still very much alive and unwell. And so what were we as precocious youth to do? Where could we turn? Right. Secret Samadhi came out a month later. The other albums that were released around Clumsy were The Offspring's Ixnay on the Ombre, Blur's Self-Titled, silver chairs freak show the pillows please mr postman built to spills perfect from now on johnny lang's big label debut as well as debuts from daft punk adam and his package the donnas and mineral and and that by itself isn't a terrible list but if you look at it you can a look at how far each of those is from each other there's no real middle ground
1: No, there's no cohesive sound that had brought the angsty rock of grunge that had dominated the scene for a few years. There's nothing like
0: that. Right. All of the big grunge bands didn't necessarily sound like each other, but there was still something to their music that unified them. Right. And at this point, it seems like everyone's kind of trying to reinvent the wheel and figure out where to go from here. And again, there's some great stuff in that mix of artists and album releases. Yeah. There's some questionable stuff, too. But also, when you consider out of that list how little of it was actually getting radio play. And radio play was important because this was pre-everything-but-radio and word-of-mouth. There was no streaming. It was that period where you had to hear it on the radio or somebody had to tell you about it. It was also during that incredibly brief window where Blockbuster Music had their incredibly short-sighted philosophy of opening any CD in stock for a listener to sample. Listen to it and decide to not buy it and then just walk out of the store.
1: (laughs) The radio had gone a lot safer in what it was doing. The buzz where we were in Houston and what we listened to primarily was playing stuff that just didn't really have an edge. Right. They were
0: playing The Wallflowers. All that's not to say that there wasn't good stuff to be found, but it was different from what popular rock had had been, been. from what alternative had been. Yep. Like you said, there are plenty of bands that were popular that were getting all of the airplay, but there are bands, like you said, like...
1: Like the Wallflowers, Tonic, Goo Goo Dolls, Matchbox 20,
0: Everclear. As I said, even like Everclear, Goo Goo Dolls, those are two bands who had been kind of rocking, who then kind of started to mellow out.
1: The Goo, Goo Dolls ended up on the Armageddon soundtrack.
0: Oh, good for them. That whole era, those are all bands that I classify as date-safe rock. Yeah. There's plenty of good songs in there, but I think it didn't do much for speaking to my teen angst when i needed a more aggressive outlet and i think that's kind of why it took me so long to actually give third eye blind a chance and come around to their first album right and i think the problem with it it's not again it's not that these were bad bands or they were writing bad songs yeah but it was all stuff that was safe enough to be immediately co-opted by the brown dot crowd <laughs> And so I remember at that period, instead of turning to those bands, I kind of turned away and doubled down more on classics like Pink Floyd and Credence and a whole lot of 80s stuff. Yeah. We've talked about Rain's voice a little bit, but how would you describe the sound of Our Lady Peace? How would you describe the band or this album?
1: Mm-hmm. It rocks a lot harder than the other stuff we're talking about right now.
0: Certainly. And I do remember that we were together the first time I heard Superman's dead. We were together. We were driving somewhere, came on the radio, and we both kind of stopped mid-conversation and turned the radio up and just kind of sat there and maybe only broke the silence to be like, who the heck is this? Yep.
1: There's a lot more intensity behind the music, and I remember that specifically because very shortly after that, we both bought the album, and it wasn't always the norm for us both to hear something new and be like, wow,
0: this is really good. Yeah, we didn't always agree. No. But this is one that we are both instantly sold on. Instantly. In listening to this over and over and over and over and over in preparation for tonight's recording, after my first couple of listens, it was bugging me because it was reminding me of something that I couldn't put my finger on at first. And then after a couple more listens, I had the realization that as a whole, it kind of sounds like a slightly unhinged manic Better Than Ezra. Huh. That's an interesting take. If Better Than Ezra had issues and stopped taking their meds, Clumsy might be the album they would make. I can see that. There's just something in some of Rain's deliveries, the way that words flow out of him, some of the notes he goes up for and hits and holds, they reminded me a lot of Better Than Esther songs.
1: I can see that, in all the best
0: ways. Now, Mike Turner, in an interview with the Vancouver... Provenance, in January of 97, he said, The first album was successful, at least in our eyes, because we stuck to our convictions about what we wanted to do in terms of the songs and the sound. Our fans like what we liked. We liked what made us happy as musicians, so we're going to have to stay with that because these people, to whom we owe our current situation, validated it the first time in a way that's admitting that the band isn't necessarily making huge leaps or making drastic changes from the first album. Yeah. But there's also that bit in there where he's saying, like, our fans liked what we liked, and what we liked made us happy as musicians. And so I think that's kind of a roundabout way of admitting that he's perfectly fine drawing inspiration and drawing comparisons to other modern-day contemporary bands. Yeah. As a whole, I don't think that they're biting anyone's style but there's moments and certainly a lot of different bands. I see similar sounds throughout. We already touched on how Superman's dead was the first our lady P song that we heard it was. and we were immediately sold on them, which is lucky because it is both the first single that they released uh-huh. in January of 97, just a couple weeks before the album dropped. And it also happens to be the very first song on the album.
1: It does. This song is about as alt-rock as it gets. You can feel a progression from the 90s grunge era with Mm -hmm. the gritty guitar riffs, that really consistent, almost like a pulse bass line, Mm -hmm. and the intense drum section. Definitely. And like you said, this was our first encounter with Rain as a Mm -hmm. musician, and his voice, there's like this serene whisper to this angry Mm wail. It's just so full of emotion in this song. I like it.
0: And that's one thing that he and the band, I think, were very successful at doing was conveying some emotions. I'm not always sure what the emotion is supposed to be, but there's always something coming through. Now, the first track. Superman's Dead. The melody starts out on an acoustic guitar but there's this electric feedback layered under and an immediate drum beat so there's no confusion that this is in fact a rock song and the acoustic guitar only drives the song up to the first chorus when the electric and even harder drums punch their way into the mix. However, everything but the acoustic drop out for a handful of measures around 250 for a kind of anti-bridge. As Rain's vocals he just starts repeating, doesn't any Anybody ever know
1: that the world's a subway?
0: Subway. Indeed. As a whole, I think listening to the lyrics, reading the lyrics, a lot of the time there's plenty of room to be like, what? <laughs> Luckily, Our Lady Peace coming up at the right era as the internet was starting to become a viable thing Mm -hmm. they were early adapters and they were early in having an online fan club and an online newsletter and posting all of their stuff to a website and so everything's been very well documented and i was able to find a website that had kind of gone through all of that and archived it but then also took snippets of interviews and quotes where the band had talked about each song and so they're able to give breakdowns of each song. So we luckily don't have to be confused about the meanings because we have Rain and other members explaining them to us.
1: That's pretty amazing. So, are we going to lose our sponsorship from songmeanings.com then tonight?
0: I mean, if you have some gold from them, then, you know, I'm open to differing opinions. Maybe Rain doesn't know what he's talking about and some random anonymous stranger on the internet knows better. But with regards to Superman's dead, Rain said it's about how hard it is for kids to grow up today. And mind you, most of these quotes are going to be back in 97. So even though these quotes are 25 years old, most of them do have a certain amount of relevance to them still. Yeah, he says it's about how hard it is for kids to grow up today. They're inundated with the media and images and clicks they have to try to fit into. Two images that are really strong for me lyrically are the line "Ordinary's not good enough today. Mm-hmm. And when I think of kids today, I would never think of a group of eight-year-olds going out to a baseball park and throwing a ball around. It doesn't happen anymore. I have a nine-year-old brother. He's either inside playing Nintendo or staying up late on a school night watching Beavis and Butthead. And you juxtapose that against the old Superman on the black and white series. He was a real hero, good values, strong willed. A gentleman but i think beavis and butthead wins today
1: you know what he says here has so much more applicability today with kids and the are
0: connected to their devices and the cloud and the social medias yeah it's just continued to go downhill it has and i don't necessarily think it's their fault and he's certainly not saying it's their fault in other interviews he talks about how it's all media and big business and corporates just constantly barraging them with ideas of who they should be what they should be how to be cool and it certainly hasn't gotten easier not at all which kind of leads into the line that you sang earlier the world's a subway which jeremy taggart in an interview in april of 2001 explained that the world's a subway is basically saying life is moving fast and it doesn't really stop it just gathers speed there's A definite bleakness to it. Life isn't always sunshine and automatic flowers.
1: Ooh, nice segue, Mark. Swish. That brings us to song number two, which is Automatic Flowers. This was their third single, and it was released summer 97 on July 14th.
0: I don't remember this or many of the other following singles with the exception of Clumsy, but there were apparently five singles released from this album. I'm with you, Mark. I don't really remember this getting radio play. It's kind of like them having success with Starseed from their previous album that maybe they just didn't transfer into our market. Maybe they just stayed big in like LA or New York or maybe I don't remember it. But this one is kicked off with this nice little doo-doo, doo-doo-doo. There's this vocalization that he does. Yeah. It's quickly joined by this snare-based rhythmic drum beat underlaying extended notes on a keyboard. And they create some nice textures. And for a song that is about someone who thinks that they are going or who very well may actually be crazy, those kinds of things are very nice touches. Yeah. The doo-doos. Doo-doo. The doo-doo and the extended textures underneath everything. They add the little extra something. And it's something that this band does well, not just on this track, but throughout the entirety of Clumsy. I know it's something that after that they had initially recorded all the tracks and had the tracks, they went back and spent a lot of time on the textures. And it shows. Yeah. It's that undercurrent throughout the album of extra stuff that I think helps add to the overall manic feel of this album. That's fair. I love this song. I know with your ADD, do those things ever kind of get under your skin? No. Okay. I dig this song. I was dating this girl years ago in California, and we would do stuff with this other couple, Sam and Beth. And we were together at my apartment one night, and we were going to watch Punch Drunk Love, the Paul Thomas Anderson and Adam Sandler. Yeah. Since Adam Sandler's character is kind of manic and kind of on edge throughout Paul Thomas Anderson in scoring it he added a lot of tones to it and a lot of different rhythms and beats and things to kind of be unsettling underneath and both sam and beth they had their own kind of anxiety issues and they made it maybe 30 minutes into the movie before they're like i can't take this anymore (laughs) It was getting under their skin, just those extra little noises and the tones. And and it was just fun to watch them squirm. And so I, listening to the song, had that vivid memory of that happening to them. And so I can see both this song and this album doing the same thing to maybe other people who have their own anxiety issues. Maybe it does kind of drive them a little wild.
1: Hmm. I do want to turn, for this one, this is where I had my insight from, songmeanings.com. Okay. And we're going back to Grafatt Pimp on July 19th, 2002. He wrote, my ex-girlfriend's name is Sarah, and that (laughs) is crazy.
0: Okay. The opening line of the song is, and Sarah thinks she's died here once before. She's crazy. So I can sympathize with. What did you say his name was? Griffette Pimp. Griffet Pimp. Okay. Yes.
1: We go through a lot through this song. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of winding, like walking through a funhouse at a carnival.
0: That carnival-like atmosphere is something that Rain has said before that they were going for with the album. They wanted both the album itself to have a carnival feel, but especially track three. I
1: may have heard Automatic Flowers on the radio. I really don't think I heard Carnival anywhere except
0: on CD track three and the fourth single is called carnival honestly as i was listening through the album because i guess it's been a very long time since i've sat down to listen to the album as a whole yeah the first time i listened through it there were only like three or four songs where i'm like i remember this song so much of it i was like i know i've listened to this album a lot but this isn't clicking at all
1: well i listen to this song a whole lot because christine my wife is a big fan of rain and our lady peace
0: I, I did remember Automatic Flowers, because at the time, this album was one that, like, Leah and I bonded over. She was really into it, and Automatic Flowers was one that she liked. And so I do remember that one, but plenty of these others, I was just like, huh,
1: okay. This is a song that apparently they did, that is apparently on this album that I thought I had listened to a lot.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's just because we lived close enough that it didn't take the full album to play through to drive from my house to yours. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, track three, Carnival. Who knew? Out of the five singles on the album, this is the only one that does not have a music video. Hmm. But on this one, Clumsy catches its breath. It starts with vocals and sparse guitars, drums no real melody for the first 40 seconds or so. And then they tease a melody that drops out almost as soon as it starts. The drums enter at the same time as the melody lick and they stick that out playing a simple beat that's mostly a shuffled march on a snare. And finally everything hits and it becomes a real rock song at about a minute 10 and lasts for the duration of the chorus. Then it proceeds to repeat the second verse and instead of everything dropping out again, After the second chorus, they keep up the rock through the bridge, reprise the chorus a third time, and from there just jam it out before letting the electric guitars fade. And we're just left with that simple drum march and a light melody playing the song out along some textured, seemingly random vocalizations from Rain.
1: This was one that, it's an okay song, but it did not come in the running for my top anything.
0: Fun fact. Oh yes, fun fact. Fun fact. While I agree that the song itself may not be the most amazing to listen to, it probably has the best story of any of the songs on the album. Oh, do tell. And is why Mike Turner is convinced that the Coutts family cottage is haunted. A point that Duncan and he argued about in an interview in November of 97. (laughs) Duncan insists that the place had never been haunted before. But they both agree that bandmate Jeremy Taggart, who had brought a Ouija board to the cottage to play with during the recording session, he played with it and stuff got weird. Weird how? In the interview, unfortunately, they don't go into depth about it. Oh, But Mike claims that Jeremy saw some stuff, while Duncan claims that Jeremy fell into a trance and some really weird things started happening, quote unquote. Huh. Either way, a couple days later, after the weirdness, when the band sat down to review the tape that had been left running that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. When they got to the proximity of when the weird stuff was happening, they heard this weird little melody playing. And everyone was like, ooh, that's kind of spooky and cool. But Turner swears he doesn't remember playing it. And no one else in the band took credit for it either. Huh. Huh.
1: Yeah. Well, that's fun. Nothing like random ghosts contributing to your album, right?
0: Yeah. So, Carnival. It's apparently a haunted carnival. Apparently so. I don't know about you, but if I were in that situation, I would get out of there as quickly as I could. Maybe writing a Big Dumb Rocket. Maybe. Which is song four of the album. Track four, Big Dumb Rocket. Like everything else on the album, before it was known as Big Dumb Rocket, it had another name. (laughs) And the song that would be track four was previously known as Spider Gun. Spider Gun. Spider. However, before it was Spider Gun, it was known as Disgusted. Hmm. Nice. So this one opens with more vocalization. It's a hummed melody that's then repeated by the guitars. And the song quickly gets down to business. However, around 205, there's a little bit of a break in the song where Rain goes into some random do wah oh Vocalizations. To me, the way that he delivers the wa oh oh bit, to me it had like a solid Everclear vibe. I could hear that. Kind of like Santa Monica days when Everclear was yeah still kind of loose and rocky and fun and weren't all about singing about their sad depressing childhood.
1: Father of mine. I could hear this as having some of that art's fun years.
0: That Everclear dua oh was then repeated about a minute later in the track. Despite the fun vocalizations, this one has a much more serious, less fun story behind it than Carnival. It's really sad. Not as sad as it could have been. No, but it is sad to think what could have happened. As Rain tells the story, Big Dumb Rocket is about me almost killing one of my best friends with a gun. I was in some stupid gun club in high school for about a week. A friend of mine's father had a gun, and like a stupid kid, I was fooling around with it. I pulled out the magazine and thought there was no bullets, and I was pointing it at my friend. I found out later that a bullet had been in the chamber. I had never had my finger on the trigger, but still, that happened about two and a half years ago, and I still have nightmares about it. I was just a effing idiot. And like every song, it's pretty much based on those four or five seconds where you have a chance to make the right or wrong decisions. Luckily, in some of those instances, I didn't have to pay, but I did make the wrong decision.
1: The last line is very pointed or the last stanza said, and I don't want to find the big, dumb rocket on your mind. And I don't want to find that it's mostly you and mostly me and a tired gun that's
0: not empty. Yeah, like he said, years later, it was still something that weighed on him. It gave him nightmares. They yep. kept him up at night, and it was the kind of thing that he still would worry about at 4 a.m.
1: Which is presumably when he wrote the next song, our fifth single from the album, released December 2nd, 1997, called 4 a.m. This song slows down big time. It does. As you said, it's got a slow ballad feel, opening with a simple electric guitar and rain. And about 50 seconds in, an acoustic joins the mix, strumming slowly. The drums don't come in until a minute 20, but the pace stays where it's been for another minute when a second electric guitar comes in soloing. And it adds some flash to the track but it doesn't ever break the somber mood i really like how you worded that because this song is intentionally somber i'll let you finish your description but that's the best way to put it
0: thank you everything on this is just layered bit by bit and builds bit by bit and by the end there's additional vocal textures and there's even a keyboard part softly under everything else but as big as the sound gets it never breaks that mood. It never breaks that spell. And like you said, 4 a.m. Is approximately when he wrote the song. And as Rain tells it, 4 a.m. was like an epiphany. It happened at about 4 a.m., In my bedroom one night, I wrote the chords and the lyrics in about five minutes. Those types of things scare me because you can't rely on that stuff. I get a little worried about that. When it happens that quickly, you feel like it's a gift. Sometimes I feel like I didn't write it, that someone, wherever, gave it to me. Maybe it's the same ghost that gave him Carnival. Who knows? (laughs) This one was actually the first track that Rain wrote and performed guitars for. On the first album, he didn't do any guitars. He didn't play anything. He wrote this one, and he took it in, and he laid down all the basics himself. Lyrically, this is one of the more straightforward songs on the album. Absolutely. It's a song I related to 25 years ago, and I relate to it today. Easy to understand, easy to relate to. Easy to relate to. It opens up. I walked around my good intentions and found that there were none. I blame my father for the wasted years we hardly talked. I never thought I would forget this hate. Then a phone call made me realize I'm wrong. I'm sure at some point you probably had something that you were processing or had to work through or issues with both your biological and your stepdad. I don't imagine that it was always sunshiny. No. For me this made me think of when i moved to salt lake my dad had been living in salt lake and when i moved there we were kind of at a point where tensions were high and i didn't even tell him i was moving to salt lake i was there for two or three months before i even let him know and i got a call in the middle of the night one night from my stepmom which was odd because she's never called me for any reason and my dad had had our heart attack and was in the hospital damn it was one of those things where it's very much like our relationship's just crap But I don't want him to die. Right. Coming into this album and hearing the song fresh, because so much of the album was new again to me, this one kind of hit me. I can see that, man. However, there is a point later in the song where he says, I blame myself, and I don't blame myself. I know my dad's at fault for everything.
1: (laughs) The recurring line, if I don't make it known that I've loved you all along.
0: Just like sunny days that we ignored. Because we're all dumb and jaded. Yep. Now that I will agree that, yes, I am dumb and jaded.
1: Did this song ever leave you shaking when you heard it after
0: something like that? No, because I'm fairly dead inside. But track six, Shaking. Shaking comes in heavier, but it still doesn't really pick up the pace.
1: No, but it does go a bit more angsty, less somber, more angst.
0: Yeah, and there's a barrage of guitars, and to match that, Rain kind of snarls the lyrics. And around 210, there's a nice little guitar bit that starts to make me think that it should have been a classic Stone Temple Pilots riff.
1: (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: And just as quickly as I start to think about that, it cuts to a breakdown in the song. A breakdown which, in 1997, to Canadian Music Magazine... After explaining all the layering and mixing and processing involved, Arnold describes the end-resulting sound of the breakdown as, it sounded like everyone was coming out of this garbage can. Just to make it sound like all of a sudden, out of thin air, there's this little tiny band playing. This one's one I can take your leave. Mm -hmm. The next one is not, though. It's Clumsy, and it's a great
1: song. Clumsy was the second single. Also, the, again, the title of the album. It was released on April 9th, 1997.
0: It was released as a single, April 9th, 1997. Yes, it was released as a single. And I make that distinction because, again, this is that period where all that we had was radio. And so now we'll hear four or five, six songs on an album before the album's released because it's trying to build up hype and it's trying to get people to pre-save it on Spotify. But back then, the first single was released just a couple of weeks before the album. Right. And they were still dropping singles into December of that year. So the album was released in January and December. They were still dropping singles. And that was to continue to remind people that it existed, that they should buy their record that the record was available to buy and for the people who maybe were slow coming to the party to be like oh here's another song that you might like the industry was drastically different it was and luckily for our lady peace the powers that be at columbia record was willing to put the money behind promoting this album
1: yes it's interesting now that they were just released singles i don't know how many bands have just released singles without announcing an album or knowing if it's going to be attached to anything at all
0: yeah it's a weird world now man We're in a time period where everything's about constant content. It doesn't have to be good content. It doesn't have to be content that serves a bigger purpose. Feed the machine, man. It's just attention spans for those kids on the subway. On the subway. Subway. But clumsy. It opens with this little melody played on a piano that isn't necessarily out of tune, but it sounds old and worn and maybe just slightly as off-kilter as the rest of the band does throughout the album. And it perfectly sets the tone for this track. It really does. There's something going on here that's just wonderful.
1: It is. The Toronto radio station Boom 97.3 has a video series on YouTube called Behind the Vinyl, where musicians sit down and talk about their tracks. And you got some cool stuff uh, from Rain talking about that, right, Mark?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Essentially, the whole thing is an artist literally puts their song on a record and sits down. And for the duration of the song, they talk about it. And like any self-respecting musician who takes themselves and their art seriously, he seems entirely uncomfortable the entire time talking about the song. (laughs) He described the song, first off, as a beast to record. He said, some songs just pour out of you. This one was a bit of work, but satisfying at the end of the day. And by the end of the day, he means the three weeks that it took them to work on this one song alone. Because they spent three weeks recording and re-recording and slightly adjusting guitar tones ever so much. And it's still not being right. This is one that was originally written as kind of an acoustic song, and they realized it had so much more potential to be so much more powerful because playing it acoustic, it never quite hit where they thought it could. And so they kept chipping away, adjusting those tones, trying different parts, trying different textures, adding the keyboard, tinkering with the piano tones. And I agree with Rain 100% that it all totally paid off. Yeah, I'm glad they waited and made it sound this good. It makes me think about Elvis. Okay. Back in the days where everything was analog, there was no digital. Elvis would do. 50 60 takes of his vocals just to make sure that he got the vocal take just right and mind you part of the reason he had to do so many was because we didn't have the digital technology to clean it up or to piece different parts together but the dedication that he had to put in the work to sing one song 60 times to make sure it was right and just how that would wear on anyone's voice
1: any normal sane person's voice and mental
0: health yeah i've hung out with friends in studios as they've been recording they track everything and vocals are usually the last thing that gets laid down and it can tear a voice up nobody i know has had the stamina to do more than maybe a dozen takes before saying it's good enough challenge accepted Ooh, i can't wait till your album drops No, probably not.
1: You've heard me sing, right?
0: I've heard you scream the F word into a microphone over and over and over again. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh... I would distance myself from that project as well if I were you. Yeah, I just throw it away like that old shoelace. Clumsy. The song properly starts with Rain and an acoustic guitar, and they're joined by the piano and some hand drums and it all keeps a fairly solemn feel to the track and as the track progresses it fills out a bit more with full drums and bass and it gets a bit heavier and just like 4am as it builds doesn't lose that feel that you get from the start it manages to keep the tone yeah this all builds Until about three minute mark, everything drops out except rain and a single electric guitar for a nice little break where he's just softly singing the first bit of the chorus. I'll be waving my hand, watching you drown, watching you scream, quiet or loud.
1: That's dark, man.
0: I always thought that was kind of brutal. Yeah. I've definitely had relationships where that's how I felt coming out of it. But Rain gave an interview with Circus Magazine in 1998, and describing the lyrics, said, It's about seeing something, but not seeing it for what it really is. It's about decisions. Imagine that. <laughs> it's about decisions. That image of waving your hand watching you drown it's about seeing someone in the water they're waving at you and you're just waving back not realizing that they're drowning or you think they're drowning but they're just waving at you it's those weird situations where you just take something at face value but you can be so wrong you have to look deeper and question things
1: that adds an interesting element because i had assumed he knew she was drowning or
0: he was drowning he's saying it can be that but there's so much more to the meaning of it yeah that was an interesting revelation those extra layers to the song to the depth to the meaning that after 25 years of listening and loving the songs to have that oh that's an interesting take that because i'm so caught up in my own interpretation i never would have thought about no i wouldn't have either i always just figure that you're waving at whoever's drowning saying goodbye Smell you later. Bye, Felicia. I would never think that maybe you should be waving hello, Oscar.
1: Uh, Talk about a song I did not remember at all. (laughs) And as I'm looking at it right now, I still find it really unremarkable.
0: Yeah. On this album, having listened to it half a dozen times before I went to sit down critically and start making the notes, I found it really hard to move beyond clumsy. That's fair. Because Clumsy is just so good, and I don't mean that any of the following songs are bad, but there's nothing nearly as inspired. No. And so maybe your attention span is rubbing off on me. Maybe it was me just wanting to be lazy, but I've had a hard time the last couple of listen-throughs just pushing myself through these final tracks. I can see why. Again, not to say that there aren't moments in these songs that are good. No, 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 there are definite moments, but... You go from the layer and the emotion and everything happening and everything that clumsy makes you feel and Hello Oscar immediately bursts into just another driving late 90s rock song with more guitar parts that just remind me of Stone Temple Pilots. (laughs) It's boring. It's not that it's boring. It's not that it's bad, but it's just such a weird juxtaposition.
1: No, it's boring to me. Okay, I find the song boring. OK, it's unmemorable and it could be like you said, it follows clumsy and that's a really tough spot to be in on an album. Yeah, but it doesn't do it
0: for me. So you're saying it kind of let you down. Uh,
1: It definitely let me down and quite a bit more than song number nine. Let you down. <laughs>
0: So, Hello, Oscar kind of abruptly ends, and there's this brief electronic rhythmic beeping that acts as a buffer between the previous track before this track gets down to business, and that business is delivering another high-energy 90s rock song. It matches the same tone and the same energy of the prior track, and what Our Lady Peace is doing well in these last few songs are delivering solid 90s rock songs that all very much has its own distinctive sound and flair and flavor and uniqueness to it while remaining within the realm of that uniquely Our Lady piece sound. Yeah.
1: Let's jump on to the story of A Hundred Isles. And it was about at this point that I realized I don't usually make it this far into the album.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now, this one, again, had previously been named something completely different, and it was originally called Anacine you know what anacin is like the pills yeah the only explanation i could find for it was the pills which were a combination of painkiller and caffeine mm, love it which sound like an interesting fun combination speaking of fun combinations the song itself it starts off with a melody that has an electronic 8-bit video game it does quality to it if that game were something like prince of persia that's set in a middle east environment there's totally that vibe the melody that starts this off however it quickly blends into the electric guitars and is gone that honestly kind of made me sad because i would have liked to have had that come back throughout the song more
1: i would too because it was fun and it was different right
0: it was something that we haven't heard before a million times Jeremy Taggart, in an interview with Modern Drummer from February of 98, kind of echoes this sentiment. He said, three months after you record, you start to hear flaws. The story of A Hundred Isles has a Keith Moon influence. No one told me, don't do that, you're overplaying. And there are sections of just complete chaos. And yeah, this one, it has a lot of 90s rock energy, and there's a lot of guitars and the drums are all over the place, and it is a very chaotic song to it. It is, it's all over the place. But like the lyrics say, this is not what you wanted.
1: You know what else I don't want? What's that? I do want Anison, but what I don't want is a car crash. They're not fun. Nope. And I got to admit, I laughed when I first
0: read your line here. (laughs) That's good, because it was incredibly nice of Silverchair to write the final (laughs) track for the Our Lady Peace album. (laughs) It sounds like it could have been on Frog Stomp. It just opens up with a super beefy bass line that, yeah, yeah, it totally feels like it was something left off of Frog, Stomp. Frog Stomp. And we're not the only ones who would make that comparison to Silverchair. In a 1997 interview, Rain was asked straight out, What do you think of the fact that a lot of people compare you to Silverchair? To which he replied, Should we think anything of it? That's plainly ignorant and superficial. People who do that show a lot of ignorance and we refuse to let that bother us.
1: I guess that's a a stab at us, maybe?
0: I guess. There's more to Rain's side of the interview. At least to him, people were making the comparison not because of the sound of the band. Early on, there were a lot of comparisons because the drummer looked so young because he was. He was 17. And so I think there were music journalists who, being the quality people that they are, were just getting caught up on the fact that, oh, this guy's 17. Oh, Silverchair are all teenagers.
1: Daniel Johns was 17.
0: Right. And so I think that in Rain's response was actually what he built towards and was talking about making the age comparison is stupid. So either there's more to the question that, you know, we're coming at it from a different angle or Rain completely missed the point of the question, because this baseline definitely sounds like Silverchair. It does.
1: But that's not a bad thing.
0: No, no. It's not. And this is the last song on the album. And even though it's got that beefy bass line, it's still a bit more mellow than the prior three tracks. And it doesn't have the strong driving 90s rock sound to it. It's kind of playing you out in kind of a nice, warm, fuzzy way.
1: Yeah, it's not a bad last song. It's not one that's going to stick with me forever.
0: No. And it's one that obviously didn't stick with me forever because I had forgotten about it. (laughs) That's fair. As much as I had forgotten about half of the songs on this album, apparently.
1: I liked this album. I really did. A lot. Mm-hmm. And I still do. And I think, I don't know if it's the song quality or my ADHD, but I realize I stopped before the end of the album because I wanted to do it when I was listening for this, every
0: time I was listening to the album. I don't know if I would say that the album itself is great as a whole. I don't know if I would say that it's Aged well? Plenty of the songs were easy to describe as having a nice late 90s rock sound. So you feel like you need to be in a nostalgic mood for that to work for you then? Maybe so. I Maybe I wasn't as nostalgic as I needed to be on all my listens throughs. That's
1: fair. But you would throw a few of the songs on a playlist and be happy with every time they come up.
0: Certainly, and I have playlists that a couple of these songs are on that are regular listens. Cool. And apparently just 75% of the album isn't on those playlists. But even though at times I felt like I was becoming you because I was getting bored, or... That's not an
1: insult! You're Everybody becomes bored! I'm not saying it's an insult!
0: Ah, I'm becoming you? Well, you're the one who, on Toad, oh, by this track I was kind of bored with it. On Muse, by this <laughs> track I was kind of bored with it. Everything else you do. But this track, I was going to bored with it. So I'm not trying to necessarily use it as an insult. It's just a solid point of reference because you have your attention span problems. I do. So regardless of that feeling like Tom of feeling bored with the album, I still think that despite those flaws or despite those issues that I may have or any other feelings for the album as a whole, Superman's dead. And clumsy individually would be worth the cost of admission to take this ride. For sure. And the fact that we happen to have both is wonderful. So maybe I'm willing to be forgiving of those perceived flaws as a result. I like it. You mentioned that Christine went to the bathroom with Rain's wife in 98 at a concert, but have you ever seen Our Lady Peace live?
1: I did. I saw Our Lady Peace, I thought twice, but I was corrected. Uh, I've only seen them once. And I saw Our Lady Peace play outside at the Tulsa River Amphitheater, and they played with Three Doors Down. Ooh three doors down was not that wonderful but our lady peace was pretty darn great when was this 2003 we were lucky it was in the summer you know for some reason in really hot cities they decide amphitheaters are best done during july and august and this was at the end of july <laughs> our lady peace was the opener that's who <laughs> we were there to see they did so well rain just commanded the stage and i think we actually left during three doors down it was not nearly as good I was a little disappointed in the playlist because it was a really short set for Our Lady Peace as the opener. Right. We did get Superman's Dead, we did get Clumsy, and we got Somewhere Out There.
0: In my mind, I'm choosing to believe it's a cover of the Somewhere Out There from American Tales. Rain just covering Fivel
1: that would be unbelievably amazing uh and then we left after three doors down performed kryptonite which was like i said it was okay okay and that is the second best concert i saw at the tulsa river amphitheater well i was just kind of curious and looking earlier about our lady peace they are on tour right now um but unfortunately they are not coming here they are playing um
0: are they staying north of the border
1: yeah they're staying all in, in Canada.
0: those bastards
1: I know. Everything they're doing right now is in Canada. Oh, no, they came to New York for one show.
0: Those bastards.
1: But, oh, man, if you get a chance to see OLP, do it. Okay.
0: So who wants to guess what my top three are? I think I can guess your top two. Want to try to guess all three, though? Uh, Well, if you're
1: anything like me, 4AM is going to come in as number three. Okay. Followed by a number two of Superman's Dead. Mm Mm-hmm. And for number one, I think I'm going to have to go with Let You Down.
0: You would definitely let me down because I think we both choose Clumsy and once again have all three songs in the exact same order.
1: (laughs) I had a feeling that was going to happen, man. I really did.
0: It's so good. I tried. Like, I tried giving all of the other songs a chance to make the three spot, but none of them got there.
1: I always like it when we agree to that level, although fighting some would be a little more
0: fun. I disagree. I think fighting would be stupid.
1: Well, not on this album, but
0: on other ones. No, I don't think we should fight at all. You're an idiot for thinking that. Shut up, Mark. You shut up. You. I don't have time for this. So listeners, tell us what you think. The best way to do that is on Instagram. Or on our website. We have a form below each episode where you can make comments. You can talk about the album. You can talk about why you hate Tom. We would love to hear your thoughts on all of these things. Thanks, Mark. So, what are we doing next, Mark? That is a great question. Stand by and stay tuned. In two weeks, we will be back talking about the Beastie Boys 1998 album, Hello Nasty. Sweet. (laughs) Way to sell it. Yep. You're welcome.
1: (laughs) All right, all right, all right. That's it for tonight. See you in two weeks. This has been a production of the Geek Lounge Podcast Network and Burough Baracho Records.